This morning's reading is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15, and that's page 1182 in the Pew Bibles. The supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, what, is the, uh, what is the point of it all? That's the question that uh, forms the title of uh, the sermon this morning, a question that I'm sure everyone at some stage must have asked themselves. Now, who am I? What am I doing here? What is the point of it all? Or is life just like a blunt pencil? It has no point. Well, the answer that people come up with to that question varies uh, from time to time, uh, from place to place, and it's important uh, that if we are Christians here this morning, that we understand what other people believe, those around us, if we are to engage with them. One term often used to describe the, the society in which we, we find ourselves at the moment is it's a postmodern society, which is quite a difficult thing to describe and explain precisely. Um, it's often easier to think of what are, what are the characteristics, what are the features of the society in which we live? What are the attitudes that you find in people? One of those is um, pluralism, the existence of a number of different beliefs and religions. And along with that goes relativism, the fact that um, none of these different religions has uh, the right to have an absolute claim on the truth. You know, suppose there's an element of truth in all of them, and since we have the view that all religions lead to God. And such a relativistic mindset obviously has impacts on, on morality. Um, there is a certain moral relativism, whereas at one time you had a sort of clear understanding between what is right and wrong. Um, now there's almost no need to argue that one thing is right and one is wrong, because if it feels right for me, then that is okay. Uh, you have no right to tell me how I should live my life. And what lies behind a lot of these views is a loss of belief in God, and a belief that this life... Um, this world is all there is to it. You know, there is no other point in life. And therefore, people are, in the words of Madonna, they're living in the material world. 
You know, they're living to accumulate more and more stuff. They're living to enjoy that stuff. They're just living to enjoy themselves at the end of the day. Um, and so anything that may threaten that, that world, um, that stresses them out. That creates um, uh, tension and, and stress. People get angry about things uh, when their little world is threatened. Now, whilst the views of the world around us have changed over the years, the Christian belief, the Christian answer to the question, what is the point of it all, hasn't changed. And what I'd like to do this morning is look at the answer to that question by looking at this passage in Colossians. It's the second in our series now on the letter of Colossians. I do hope that if you are, um, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that you will find this answer compelling. If you are already a Christian, then I hope that you will have a, a greater confidence in, in what you believe uh, and also in the person in whom you believe. Because this passage is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'd like to turn to that passage in, in Colossians, if you haven't still got it open, in the, the earlier verses which we looked at last week, Paul has just prayed that the Colossians, the church there, would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He goes on, so that they may live a life worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with his power. And so now, as he helps them to know God better, he tells them a whole series of amazing truths about Jesus Christ, which help us to understand the point of it all. Because if this description of Jesus Christ is accurate, then the reason we exist is in order to demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to try over the next uh, few weeks while we're doing this series to, to memorise these verses 15 to 18 because um, I think they're, they're very helpful. If you're going through a tough time spiritually, just to remind yourself of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ we worship. It's an amazing help um, at tough times. Now we haven't got time to look at each of these statements in great detail this morning, but let's just have a look at a few of them. The first one is, he is the image, verse 15, of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. When we were in uh, Scotland uh, over the summer, we managed to bag a couple of Munros, which um, is a technical term for climbing mountains, which are higher than 3,000 feet, which is quite a few in Scotland. Um, and the views when you get to the top are quite spectacular and uh, made even more spectacular by the changing weather patterns all around you. And I tried to take some photos to capture not just the, the view, um, but the, the, the mood of the moment, what it felt like to be at the top of such a mountain. If you just go back a slide, um, didn't ask Liz why I could show this one, but um, uh, this is her. And the mood you hope feel there is that it's, it's pretty chilly, um, it's not warm, uh, there's a bit of a glimpse of blue sky behind there. There's also a bit of a feeling of um, worry on her face. It's a bit dark to see, but uh, you might pick that up. And the reason that is, is because behind me, taking the photo, there's something that she can see coming in. And that's the next photo, if we quickly turn to that. Um, it is a big storm coming in. Um, we're quite a long way up. We've got a long way to go down. We're feeling pretty vulnerable at that time. That is an image which tries to capture the moment. And to say the sun is the image of the invisible God sounds like a contradiction at first sight. You know, how can you have an image of something invisible? 
It's a bit like me saying, did you see the wind in that picture? Um, well, no, because wind is invisible. God is invisible, but he is a person. He has personal characteristics. He's perfectly holy. He's just. He's loving. And in order for us humans to appreciate God's character and his attributes, Jesus, the Son of God, who was with God in the beginning, he took on human form. He came into the world of mankind and we could see the attributes of God in Jesus Christ. So when we look at Jesus, we see God, and it's not just a partial image of him like that, that photo was. As it says in verse 19 here, it said, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus was a perfect image of God. If you looked at Jesus, you saw God. And that is only possible if Jesus was God himself. Now that does raise the question as well, as well, who am I then? Yeah, because wasn't I made in the image of God as well? Isn't that what it says in Genesis? That is what it says. But that image of God in us has been marred. Marred through the fall. So whereas Jesus is, as it says in Hebrews, the exact representation of God, we are a poor reflection of God. But it is still a partial image of God. And what that means is that my life must have meaning. Now, I'm not just an accident. Now, I'm not just a, a collection of chemicals. I'm not just a, a glorified ape that has lost most of his hair. At that, point, at that moment last week in Cornerstone, was a bit of an outbreak of giggling, I think looking at some of us who lost more hair than others. We're not just the result of a random evolutionary process. Ultimately, we have meaning in our lives. So whether we are good-looking, whether we are tall, whether we are small and not so good-looking, whether our bodies work well, whether we are the perfect athlete, or actually we are handicapped, we are still the crowning glory of the creation of God. And therefore we have dignity, we have worth, we have value, each one of us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now this is... um, if you've ever had any Jehovah's Witnesses round and you've invited them in and had a chat with them, this is a, a verse that they will use to persuade you that Jesus is not actually God. He's just a created being, created by God, the first one to be created. Now, there's a couple of problems with that interpretation. First, the immediately following verses emphasise that Jesus is actually the one through whom creation came into being. And we'll come on to that. But also, the term firstborn is used throughout the Bible to described someone who had priority, seniority. Often someone with a special place in the, in the Father's love. So, if you might want to flick back to um, the beginning of the Bible, to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4.22, if you look at that on page 61 of the Church Bibles. This is um, Moses trying to persuade Pharaoh to free the people of Israel from slavery. And God says to, to Moses in verse 22... He says, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. Or if we turn to Psalm 89, here's the psalmist repeating the the covenant that God made with David to ensure that his line would uh, last forever. And... um, 
Verse 26 of Psalm 89 on page 598, he says this. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my saviour. And I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. He's been appointed his firstborn. Jesus Christ, as the firstborn, is given the whole inheritance of the world. He is the heir of all things. The created order exists for him. And when he comes back again in all his glory, he will visibly receive his full inheritance. The people of God, the church of God, and they will share that with him. But let's go back to the other key point that this passage says, back in Colossians, and verse 16. For in him, or by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, it's clear here that Jesus is instrumental in the creation of all beings. And you know, how can he do that if he himself is only a, a created being? And in John, the beginning of the John's Gospel, it tells us also, the beginning Christ was with God, he was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So without Jesus Christ, we would not be here this morning. And if everything was made for him, then nothing in the universe exists for its own sake, for its own enjoyment and satisfaction. Every person, everything exists for the sake of displaying Christ's greatness. We talked about um, prevalent worldviews today, and of course one very strong view is that of evolution. And uh, by that I don't mean the evolving of individual species, but um, the fact that non-living chemicals can somehow assemble into a living cell, uh, and that humans can evolve from that cell, they can evolve from fish, they can evolve from animals, from, from apes. And it's a theory which, if we're honest, if we're a Christian here, makes us sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable because I guess most of us are not scientists and therefore we don't feel qualified to talk about these things. But also I think because of the way that evolution is taught in schools these days, it's taught as effectively fact. Um, and there's a reason why many young people, many adults, turn away from believing in God. They say, well, if evolution is true, then how can I believe in a creator God? One of those people was um, someone called Lee Strobel, you may have heard of. He's the author of a number of books, including this one, called The, the Case for a Creator. And uh, for him, he said, well, you know, the origin of the species simply trumped the Bible. There was no argument here. The case was closed. No point debating it. But what prompted him to investigate the claims of Jesus... And this is where evolution really has no answer, is because he saw a positive change in his wife. His wife became a believer, and he saw a change in her. And so he decided to set aside his preconceptions, and he used his background, he was an investigative journalist, and he went and interviewed some key experts in their fields, and uh, gave them a real cross-examination, experts in physics and astronomy and biochemistry and such like. And as he did so, what he began to realise was that Actually, those images that he had in his mind from school, I'm sure images that most of us have, you know, the picture of uh, the ape sort of gradually becoming more and more upright, they're almost sort of firmly fixed 
as fact were actually no more than theories, and in some cases quite tenuous ones. Um, it is a very readable book. I would recommend that to you. It's not just for those of scientific brains. Um, I don't want to encourage you all to get into some scientific debate you know, with your, your, your friends. It's, but it is important to think to, to challenge others about how they came to, to accept the beliefs they did. Um, because actually, when you accept the whole implications of Darwinism, what actually that requires is a greater leap of faith than believing in a creator God. Because what they're saying, as Strobel points out, is that they believe that nothing produces everything. As he says, non-life produces life. That randomness somehow produces fine-tuning. And unconsciousness produces consciousness. How can that happen without a creator God? This verse asserts that all things have been created through him, through Jesus Christ, and for him. And the next assertion in verse 17 is that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now again, is that really the language of someone who was just created himself? And that is, says what we read in Hebrews as well, where it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And it says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And that is a very different worldview from the one that says, well, the world came into being by chance and it was just left to evolve by itself. The creator simply left it alone. This says he sustains all things. He's supreme over eternity. He was there before the creation of the world. He's there today. And although the world is groaning, although the world has fallen, there's much wrong with it. Jesus stops it from disintegrating. He sustains it until he comes again and will renew the world. And finally, Christ here is supreme over the church, verse 18. He's the head of the body. The church is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he was the first to rise from the dead. And because of his resurrection, his followers can look forward to rising from death as well. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, if, if there were no resurrection, then our faith is futile. And he comes to the same conclusion as most people around us. He says, well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. But there is plenty of proof for Jesus' resurrection. We haven't got time to go into that today. And if you'd like to know more, come and speak to me afterwards. With all these, these amazing facts, and there's quite a lot to just take in this morning, but with, with all these, they come together then in verse 18. With all these, it comes to the conclusion, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. We exist, we were created by him as the crowning glory of his creation so that he might have the supremacy, so that he might be glorified. As we were saying earlier on, so that he might be magnified. You know, not that we can make him bigger than he really is, but we can show his greatness that he already has. Now that is our purpose. If that is our purpose, then what is the problem then? Well, the problem is that in our human nature we would rather pursue our own supremacy than that of Jesus. And the result of that, in the words of verse 21 here, is that we have been 
become alienated from God. Enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour. That is what is wrong with the world. That is a Christian understanding. That, that is what we call sin. The hostility towards God, a reluctance to accept the supremacy of another over me. To accept that there is someone who has a right to tell me how to lead my life because he, he created me and he created me for his glory. And we see that evidence, uh, that, that attitude and evidence all around us, don't we? No one tells me what I should do with my life. No one tells me who I should sleep with, what I should do with my money. I will decide that. I'm the master of my own life. But if God, as the author of life, has given us a blueprint for life, and we're not following that, then we do have a problem. If that was what we were made to do. It's like the, the Top Gear episode, I mean, we watched that, where they tried to convert these um, vehicles into amphibious vehicles and get them to cross the, uh, the channel. Of course, two of them didn't quite live up to it and sunk to the bottom of the channel. They had to be rescued. That's not what they were made for. We don't need to dwell too much, I don't think, on the problem. We know the world is in a mess. We can't really deny that. Well, we may disagree as over the cause of that mess. Because the thing is, if you haven't got an explanation of how the world came into being, other than it was just a random explosion, then you can't really have an explanation of why it's in a mess now. Because if it came into being randomly, then you, know, you can't expect it to function perfectly, can you? And if you don't think there's any meaning to life, then all you can really do is just focus on improving the quality of the life you have now. That's all there is, and you might as well try and enjoy it to its full. But if you are someone here this morning who holds that view, can I just ask you, are you really happy with that? Or is there deep down in your soul an aching, a whole, something that is saying, there must be more to life than this. Surely this can't be all there is. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Despite all the world's problems, where does all that goodness that is in people come from? Where does that come from? It's not from God. The passage tells us the cause of mankind's problems is that we have become separated from God, from the source of life. And as a result, we've become separated from each other. And the population of this country has grown, I think, uh, by about a fifth over the last 50 years, by about 10 million. We're living closer together physically and yet, relationally, we're becoming more distant. We're becoming more separated and alienated. As the new term starts, there will be thousands of children up and down the country who will experience a feeling of loneliness and alienation. And it doesn't just stop in childhood. We carry these feelings through, don't we? We don't want to be alienated. We, don't want, to be lo- we want to be loved. We want to, to belong. And for someone who's not a Christian, well, the solution to your problem is really just to pull your socks up, you know, to to grow in confidence, to, to increase your, your self-esteem, to make yourself popular. And some may achieve that, others won't. But if you go along with a Christian explanation of why the world is in a mess, then the solution is, is different. But it's also quite straightforward. Because if the problem is that we've rejected the supremacy of God, and as a result we have become alienated from him, then the solution is we need to be reconciled to him. And whilst there's no worse experience than alienation or separation, there's no better experience than reconciliation. 
to be reunited with someone from whom you've been separated. A couple of years ago, I was living in Berlin when the, the people of East and West Germany, who'd been separated for 28 years by a wall, came together. The wall came down. They were reunited, something they never expected to see in their lifetimes. And the greatest thing that can happen to us is to be reconciled to the one who made us. And the amazing thing is that although we were the cause of that separation, he was the one who took the initiative to reconcile us. It came at a cost. You know, the punishment that God set for, for us rejecting him still had to be carried out. But he chose his son to be punished instead of us. For God, it says in verse 19, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is the gospel in a nutshell. As Paul says in verse 23, this is the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, or more accurately, in all creation, to people of all nations. This is the message of hope. This is the message of forgiveness, the hope of innocence, the hope of holiness. That means that whatever you go through, you can endure it because you have been reconciled to your creator. You are now at peace with the one who made you. He has forgiven you for rejecting him. And it's in order to, to remember the death of Christ that, um, that brought us that hope that we, we come around the Lord's table in a short while to celebrate that reconciliation. Let me just finish with a couple of quick applications as we bring this to a conclusion. Let me ask the question, who is supreme in your life? Is it Jesus Christ? Or is it yourself? And if it is yourself, what makes you cling on to the supremacy of yourself? It is the fact that you've bought into the the theory of evolution and aren't willing to entertain the idea of a, a creator God? Or is it simply that you are happy living in the material world without any thought of what happens to you when you die? I want to consider for a moment that if all things really were created through Jesus Christ and for him, what are the consequences if you reject him as that supreme being? If you are already a Christian here this morning, is knowing that you've been reconciled to God, is that sufficient to give your life purpose? Are you satisfied with that? Does that make you rejoice? Does that make you happy? Does that make you want to get up in the morning? Or have you somehow subconsciously bought into the prevailing view that actually we're not really that bad anyway? You know, we're, we're pretty good people. Because what that actually implies that Christ's death was not a big deal. Or maybe you're, you're looking for something else, an, an extra experience, and an extra piece of knowledge to make yourself feel good. 
or maybe an extra task to perform to prove yourself to Jesus. If we truly appreciate the gap that once existed between us and God, that we were once alienated from him and were enemies because of our evil behaviour, and now we are presented as holy, without blemish, free from accusation, that is a truly amazing act that Jesus has performed for us. And that is the amazing truth of the gospel that should make us want to get up in the morning, to enjoy the day ahead. And so when Paul says to the Colossians here to continue in their faith, which is the main theme of this letter, what he says is do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. What he's saying is that the gospel is all you need for hope. And because we talk about the gospel message so often, maybe when you hear it, you, you start to switch off. Maybe you think, well, that's for those who don't yet know Jesus. It's not for me. I know all about that. I don't need to hear that again. You know, maybe a bit like a teenager hearing his parents keep going on about him. I've heard that before from you. I don't need to listen to it again. Once we start to switch off, once we start to lose our appreciation for the gospel, then not only do we lose the enjoyment of being a Christian, we lose the enjoyment of, of life. We get, even as Christians, fed up and discouraged by quite small things. If we accept, though, that we are sinners saved by grace, then everything takes on new significance. We can flog our guts out in Christian service, and I know many of you do that here this morning. And it won't matter how much effort is required because nothing will be too much for the one who gave his whole life for us to reconcile us to God. Paul says, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. In all you do, demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. Let me just finish that verse 17 at... Um, paraphrase in the message, or verse 16 paraphrase is what it says. It says, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him.